0: Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is John Lukovic, Sexual Self prez 4 Wing 5, 458 Trifix.
1: And I'm Karen Nance, Self Pres Social, 3 Wing 2, 371 Trifix. Hello, friends, and welcome back to The Blind Spot. This is the last episode that I'm going to be doing with John and as I've been sitting with this, I've been recognizing that the way that John and I are ending hasn't fully met my need for authenticity. And, you know, in a prior episode, it's like, yeah, John's going on to do his own creative efforts, which is true. But I also feel like it's important to name that I got into a conversation with one of John's very close friends that didn't go well. And I've actually been holding a lot of deep regret around that. And it stirred up a whole bunch of things that ended up putting John in a position where it really wouldn't be aligned with his integrity to continue working with me when one of his friends is very upset. And, you know, I just feel like it's really important as part of my growth and development, to take responsibility for the fact that I have a habit of saying things and I have this long habit of speaking words and taking action and then I'm like, whoa! Because, you know, I find out a lot about myself after I move in, when I should just rest, when I speak, when I should have considered my words first, and I think that this is something that people who are not social dominant often experience. And I learned so much from these mistakes. And God, I wish I would have known these things earlier, but sometimes I just have to speak it or do it to know. And so I'm sorry, it's not going to be the last time that I do that. And I'm noticing that as I continue on this project, I have fear that this will happen in future interviews and future encounters and I was speaking with some Enneagram friends and you know something that is so important about this type street the type three structure is to really drop in beneath and ask yourself what am I afraid of and I am really afraid of screwing things up you know I want things to go well and when I'm getting frustrated or there's an obstacle, I can feel that internal motor start running and I just start doing and I've got this big two wing and I can really, really get overbearing with the way that I try to get support from others. And, you know, I can also be blunt and I just say what I think and I go hard. And when I'm into something I'm just all in, like all the way in. And this is part of my gift and what some people love about me, but it also has gotten me into trouble from time to time. So it just felt important to name that I'm learning to pause. I'm trying to remember to move a half a step slower. I'm trying to learn how to imagine impact before I speak. And as I reflect on my journey, It's really almost comical in a tragic kind of way to look at the fires that I've set. But whatever fires I've started, I've survived them. And I'm here. And sometimes when it feels like something is the end, it's not. And when it feels like something is everything, it's not. And I'm celebrating that I'm a survivor and I'm extraordinarily resilient And when I am making these mistakes, I've come to learn that apparently I'm just working something out. I'm growing up and owning my life and not just standing at a distance from my own existence. And I think that one of the reasons why I'm so interested in interviewing couples is that the relational space has been hard for me. I left a 17-year marriage. I um, had a seven-year relationship that ended and a more recent three-year one. And when I think about the choices that I've made along the way and rules about uh, being together that I've broken, I've realized that having someone just tell me things doesn't really work for me. Sometimes I have questions and I'm looking for an answer. Um, Maybe it's just, you know, what would happen if I left and I was with them instead? And this is what I have definitely identified with as my seven fix. Um, Sometimes I just move when I could stay. So this is something that I'm learning, keeping my seat, sitting in my seat. And, you know, I have a very assertive structure, this 0.3 assertive personality with this assertive seven fix and this intense two-ing and my one-fix. You know, sometimes I just have to hit the wall and crash and it's how I'm wired. And I have to have my own experience because I don't always trust what others say. And I just need to follow something through a thread. And then I get to this place where I'm like, now I know. And, you know, sometimes there are things that are just forbidden. You know, I talk about this complicated relationship that so many of us have with the sexual instinct and uh, specifically women. And I just want to name that oftentimes sexuality is put behind door number two, and we're not supposed to look behind door number two. And I find that my mind, and I know the minds of many others, were sometimes just wired to say, what is behind door number two? And we just go and have to open up those doors and find out what's behind them. And for those of us that identify with having an assertive structure or having some intensity to the personality and you resonate with me when you can see times in your life that you've moved in when you should have just rested, I think that when we drop in and when I look at what that's about... I can see that at some key moments in my life, my will was thwarted and crushed, whether it was by systems, or education, or my family, or work, or in a relational dimension. This authentic, true expression of who I was was forbidden. And sometimes I was even penalized for certain things. And something very basic about my spirit was crushed. And it wasn't just criticism. It wasn't just being seen, but it's something that's really essential in my nature that I have been working with and healing. And so in response to my own trauma and my own wounds, which I just want to name here and now are lowercase t trauma, you know, when I talk about this, sometimes some shame comes up because I have lived an incredibly blessed life and I have amazing parents My dad is an eight and my mom is a one and my mom has two and six fixes. So she's a triple super ego type, if that means anything to anyone. And my dad is an eight, six, three tri type. So they taught me so many things and they breeded so much resilience and strength and taught me about perseverance and really enabled me to be very dedicated and loyal And there are so many wonderful gifts that I credit my parents with for enabling me to achieve and move through life and have everything that I have. But we don't get to take all the credit for the good things with also recognizing that where I know I'm tripped up, where I know I'm neurotic, where I know I've screwed things up, where the aspects of my personality can be cringy or even repulsive, that this also came from these systems and as i move through the world i'm expressing and exploring and it feels really important to own what i have to own and make amends for what i need to make amends for but to remember that i'm operating according to very predictable patterns when we're talking about our enneagram type and we're talking about our instinctual stack It's really important to me that I don't give off the impression that I am in any way, shape, or form immune to all of this. Uh, I've been working this integration to six for a while, which will give me this very important ability to pause and to consider and to be more careful as I go ahead. And this hidden piece of nine, this ability to just let it be, to just sit, to just pause to be patient, to not have to move in. These are all such important lessons for me. And it's incredibly obvious that I am here in this life to learn something. And perhaps I've even created the curriculum that I am living. And my life is a pretty interesting story. And I think that even when it's painful, I've needed everything that has happened. It's all a part of it. So for anyone who I have offended or will offend, I ask for forgiveness. And even more importantly, I've learned the importance of forgiving myself. And for anyone who comes on this show and anyone who is willing to talk about your own blunders and your own regrets, My biggest wish is that we speak kindly to our earlier selves and that we simply remember um, in this episode, you're going to hear me talk about Esther Perel, who has a beautiful saying, tell me how you were loved and I'll tell you how you love. So as I look at my parents and their structures, for those of you who know the Enneagram, you can imagine how I love. And this has come out in the form of an Enneagram three with a two wing and seven and one fixes. And as I move, there are just things that I learn. You know, sometimes I think I know something and then I screw it up and I'm like, now I know. And <laughs> unfortunately I tend to learn by doing, and I am making lots of attempts an abundance of attempts. I just keep trying and I know that I am very good at trying. So this introduction was inspired by the work of Rob Bell. He's been a very important teacher for me. I hit a shock point when I first encountered his teachings and I, and when it became evident to me that John and I were not going to be able to work out a situation that came up, I downloaded his audiobook on fear and failure. And this feels really relevant for me with my structure, but I think that we all have a relationship to fear and failure that can be challenging. And for me, the fear comes from that six arrow and the failure is obviously my point three structure. And so I just wanna express big gratitude to Rob Bell. Um, He is a wonderful speaker who comes from the Christian tradition that has been very influential to so much of my learning, and I strongly recommend that if anybody is resonating with anything that I'm sharing here in this episode, that you download his audiobook and you will hear a lot of resonance with what I've started with in this introduction today. So big gratitude. You'll hear in this episode the last conversation that John and I had, and I hope you hear the love and the joy and the fun and the play that we experienced. Mm, such sweet times. And I'm pausing because there are some tears that come up as I name it. And this is probably a part that I'll be really tempted to edit out. And maybe I should leave it. Because I cry almost every day about so many I take on a lot of pain from the patients I take care of and the kids that I'm raising and the family system that I'm a part of and the friends that I make and it just feels important to name that I care so deeply I care so deeply about this work Whew. So my invitation is to go ahead and lean into that vulnerability, to also invite in some light and to remember that it can be really heavy to own the things that we need to own and that I really want this to be a platform where however we show up, that it's welcome because we're all learning and we're all growing. And so, with that, I'm going to lead you into our episode. And this episode was really fun. John and I were talking about film and how media and film can really lead us to our experience of the instinctual drives. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that I am very sexual blind. So, he's going to start off with talking about a movie that really embodies the sexual instinct. I know that. I plan on watching it soon, and this leads us to conversations about some Netflix series and reality television, and that leads us into the study of attachment. So attachment theory is something I'm really excited about. I'm eager for you all to listen to this episode, and in future episodes, we're going to dive further into what attachment looks like with all the Enneagram types. So without further ado... I'll take you to our conversation. Thank you for being on this journey with me.
0: So when, recently we watched um, Into the Void by Gaspar Noe. Noah. I don't know how I say his name, but um, Alexandra watched it. She said this was like the, the first real like fully sexual instinct film she'd seen. And it's about a guy um, in like this, this guy, this American is living in Japan. And has a drug overdose in, um, in a Japanese, in Tokyo, in a Japanese bathroom or whatever. And or he gets, whatever there's, he dies basically. And almost the entire movie, if not the entire movie is spent in this sort of, um, Bardo state where he's like over hovering over. And as a spirit, like from his point of view, yeah. um, you know, the, the people in his lives and he, he kind of moves and, and goes between his like sister and his best friend and, and other stuff. And it's a pretty good movie. But, uh, you know, that sense of a certain kind of boundary blurring, like not in a fuzzy way, but in kind of a um, like a trans transubstantiation kind of way, mm. uh, I think is really saturated in that movie. And I think the director is a sexual six. Mm. But, uh, I mean, that's one worth checking out for that kind of, like...
1: Say the title again?
0: Enter the Void.
1: Okay, cool.
0: And, I mean, it's it's kind of a slow-paced movie, and it's one to watch when you're in a contemplative kind of zone. Like, it's pretty... It's long and it's slow, but it's, like, it's really fucking good. But it's yeah. got that quality you're speaking of, where it's, it's not necessarily, like... I guess it is dark, but it's not, like... Um, like, you know, there's lots of flavors of dark. And then this particular flavor is, like... I think gets more into that sexual instinct zone of transfiguration of, of revising one's sense of self.
1: Yeah. Do you know what else does? How about Black Mirror? Did you watch that one?
0: I watched a little bit of it. Yeah. It had it's that been a while. kind
1: of vibe to me.
0: Mm. To me, it's got kind of like uh, you know, it's like kind of futurist. It's got that kind of um like some of it actually to me like was kind of social self prize.
1: Yeah, okay. In that kind of Because like, there's the dystopian social piece.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. this techno futurist like Mm -hmm. what's going to happen to us all when the the material conditions change
1: Mm -hmm. yeah the episode specifically i was remembering was when this woman who's like in her 30s her lover suddenly dies traumatically and she is heartbroken and she goes online and basically can order like an avatar and like he actually like performs better than the real guy could and is programmed to like meet her needs even better and like she just decides i'm going to be happy with this avatar and like decides to <laughs> hole up with him even though like she knows he's not a real human and that was interesting so maybe i'm basing it off of that one because it was all about the one-to-one but yeah. in a very sort of creepy way
0: uh, uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah there's the objectification
1: yeah totally yeah Well, and when I think about sexual social, like when I was thinking of the nine I'm referencing, like when he's not watching these darker things, he's watching like Frasier or like (laughs) comedy or. um, So it's interesting how there's like the dark and the light. And what I'm hearing Mm -hmm. is that Alexander Moore goes to as a social dominant, like these reality shows and things like that.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting because. I think the way most people approach the things that she consumes, uh, they would kind of take it as like, in a sense, face value or something, or just like, I want to get into the drama. And I think for Alexandra, actually, it is kind of horrifying and dark because, you know, like shows, she'll watch like The Bachelor and the way she describes it is like a human zoo where you're watching what humans do. And, And I mean, her being triple attachment, a nine with a three and a six fix and social instinct, she's so aware and sensitive of like what people are up to. And we've been trying to get her to actually start her own podcast that where she talks about like basically like reality TV and the Enneagram because she's not looking at it from like, Oh, look at how interesting this is. Or or, like, can you believe she said that? But really like, she'll be like, Oh, look, they're attaching now. Like they don't even like each other, but they're attaching now. Like she'll call it like, what's happening from a very deep psychological place. Oh, yeah. And it is kind of like, you know, there's a funny element to it. Like, it's an absurd thing. But there's also this, like, it's very dark how, um, especially like, with, like, I mean, for me, I'm just kind of dismissive of it. I'll watch it now with her. But, like, previously, I was just like, this is stupid and this is fake. But she uh, is able to point out, like, the horror show of it, where it's like, you know, most of these, these shows have some element of, like, of, of finding a romantic partner or something. Right and she'll be like all right look at these two like these two don't actually like each other but for whatever reason they've convinced themselves that this is a, like an attachment that can work
1: oh i relate and, to that 100% as an attachment and, type
0: and so she, yeah like and i i don't at all and so yeah. she'll catch where like the moment where like there was this one in particular where um what is it, what happened this guy was into this woman and they were like partnered off on this show where there was a lot of different couples. I can't even remember what it was. And he's like trying to get with her, trying to get with her, trying to get with her. And then they have some kind of like big, I think it was like a sweat lodge or something, like some kind of intense experience. And in the whole whole pr- leading up to this, she's like, I'm not interested in in this guy. I'm not interested in this guy. He's nice, but he's he's just like a friend. I'm not interested. And they have this intense experience. And then like you could see in her eyes where suddenly she's like, like, What how's Alexander put it? Like she's um,
1: well she's attaching. Like you can see like the spark or the shift or the pupil dilation or whatever it is she's picking up on the activation of the nervous system.
0: And you yes, and you can also see her kind of searching for the thing to attach to. Yeah, like there's a particular term Alexander uses a lot where it's like how an attachment type at certain times can make themselves see what they want to see or need to see to attach
1: a hundred percent. Yes.
0: Or like find like, you know, like, like maybe in a person there's like, there's these things you like, things you don't like, but if there's like a kernel to attach to, it's kind of like digging into that person and like, Oh, now I finally got that kernel that I can attach to.
1: And what's amazing about attachment types is that then we can completely disregard all the other data and convince ourselves that this is what matters. And so I love how you guys have talked about on Big Hormone Enneagram that there's attachment to being disconnected because it's like you won't let go. And yet there's all these reasons why... You have let go, but you're not completely apart. And you do this like weird together, not together dance thing is what I see a lot of attachment types and myself have done.
0: Totally. And this thing of like, I want you to see me, but because I am working to maintain an attachment, I'm actually going to hide parts of myself or like kind of like not put certain parts of myself forward because I don't want you to reject them. But because I do that, I'm not actually revealing who I am. And I'm also feeling you do this if if I'm with another attachment type or something like that. It's like, I'm also feeling you do the same thing. We're kind of like adjusting to each other. And in a certain way, the relationship becomes how we adjust to each other or not.
1: 100%. And,
0: and so the there can be like a, a hiddenness in terms of what the core related relationship aspect is. You know, like what's what's the real, what's the relationship? Is it that there's an actual attraction, an actual connection, in which it can have that, you know, as well. It's not like one or the other kind of thing. Or is it uh, that we've we found something acceptable or that can, we can attach to and we're kind of, like like when you see, like, lenses on a camera trying to kind of, like, come into focus. It's like this constant attempt to see what I want to see or need to see in the another person, and then the The feeling of not being seen means the ego goes into overdrive to try to adapt more. Because if I adapt more, then eventually I can be seen. Like it's 100%. like if the, the attachment secure enough, because there's enough adapting, then you'll then it'll lead down this path to to being seen.
1: Yeah, I feel like it's really important just for our listeners to define what we're talking about when we're talking about the attachment types, which are 3, 6, and 9, as opposed to the frustration types, which are 1, 4, and 7, as opposed to the rejection types, which are 2, 5, and 8. And I know this isn't a podcast describing those triads, and maybe we'll do one at some point, but I think it's just important to highlight that that's what we're talking about, as opposed to attachment theory, which right. we actually haven't talked about this, um, how much research and how much do you know about attachment theory that's a real interest area of mine
0: I don't know very much I've kind of you know I'm I'm familiar with anxious avoiding all those kind of like terms but I don't really know it in a deep way
1: okay well is it okay if I share a little bit because I think it's going to help our um, listeners a lot so and everything I've learned comes from Diane Poole Heller and I want to make sure I have that right or we'll edit in the right name Um, she has a wonderful attachment quiz online it's either it's either Diane Heller Poole or Diane Pool Heller, I'm just flipping it in my mind, but and the other one is Sarah Payton. Sarah Payton also has a great attachment quiz and a lot of webinars and writing about this. And attachment is what forms at ages zero to three, and attachment primarily has to do with the relationship between the baby and the mom. And what's happening during this phase? Is that the child is coming into the world and separates from the mother when the birth process happens? And this is the first time that the baby isn't having 100% of its needs met by mom because it's no longer connected by the umbilical cord. So we've referenced a little bit about how this attachment start stuff and object relations starts occurring in relation to feeding, in relation to uh, toileting, in relation to these energies that start manifesting inside of the child. So Object relations is slightly different. That's sort of like what meaning am I making about what impulses are coming up inside of me and how my nurturing or figure is reacting to me. Now with attachment, what happens is that It depends upon how the mother is emotionally reacting to the child and this has a lot to do with the autonomic nervous system where we have both our sympathetic part of our nervous system as well as our parasympathetic. And for people who are interested about this, I'm talking about the polyvagal theory, which is basically how do we amp up our nervous system and how do we turn our nervous system down. And both can be good strategies depending upon what kind of parenting that the child is getting. So when we think about um, a child that might develop a more anxious strategy, this actually is a child that maybe had a mother that is a little bit more smothering a little bit more overly attentive meeting a lot of needs but then at times um, isn't showing up the way the child would want so the child learns to activate the nervous system to sort of turn it up they start crying they start carrying on having the tantrum and then if the mother comes in and sues the child um, that teaches the child how to self-regulate. But if the mother is not responsive to the child's needs, and the child really has to amp themselves up before those needs get met, that's going to form the basis of an anxious attachment style. Because that child is learning to really become perceptive of what's going on with the mother, like really tracking everything that's going on. And there's a lot of enmeshment that happens with people with anxious attachment styles. It's like, I haven't Fully separated from your nervous system and you haven't fully separated from mine so I'm tracking you and I'm a little nervous because you've been a little erratic in how you show up for me and so when my needs aren't being met I might react with some acting out some emotionality and this is what we call um, anxious attachment now on the other hand if a child grows up with a more neglectful parent with a parent where they're realizing, you know, I'm in distress and my needs don't get met. I get ignored, I get neglected, I'm not seen. That child may learn that the better way to deal with what's coming up in the nervous system is to downregulate. You get more parasympathetic activity. And so, when the nervous system downregulates, they basically start to shut down and not feel as much. And they enter a little bit more of a withdrawn stance. They have this idea that I really have to take care of myself, and they have a lot of independence. And so, when their nervous system gets activated, when this person becomes an adult, They're more likely to have a more avoidant attachment style, which is when I'm not liking what's happening in this dynamic, I'm going to pull inward and I'm going to kind of withdraw because that feels safer and there wasn't anybody there that supported me in a way that felt comfortable when I was growing up. Now, if the parent is very erratic maybe even violent, um, really scary for the child, then the child is more likely to develop something called disorganized attachment. And disorganized attachment is... um, when you get triggered, you may tend to show up in these very explosive, erratic, there's a lot of fear. It may not always be justified. There's just a lot more intensity and craziness that's going on with the disorganized attachment style. And this is all in contrast to secure attachment, which is in any relationship, there's going to be highs and lows and challenges. And, you know, can we kind of navigate those without completely losing ourselves and be able to translate? Transition through that. And the important thing to remember, and what I love about the quizzes that I referenced, is that very few people are like nobody's 100% securely attached. You know, we all have enough trauma that we have a certain percentage of us that will react with an anxious attachment style, a certain percentage of us that might act avoidant, and a certain percentage of us that might act disorganized. And this tends to come out with the people that we're closest to because they sort of step into our trauma bubbles. And so when they enter into a zone that triggers our reactivity, we are going to sort of flash back to these object relations that formed, and the nervous system is going to do what it did in childhood and either react in this situation in a more anxious, avoidant, or disorganized pattern. So I just wanted to give that little summary, and uh, there's a lot of places where you can get a lot more information about this, but I thought that that was an important basis to give when we're using this word attachment. We might be talking about attachment style, which is anxious, avoidant, disorganized, or secure. Or we might be talking about the attachment types, which are the three, six, and nines in the Enneagram. how do I do with that, John? What questions do you have and what gaps did I leave?
0: Uh, so it sounds like the you did really well, but I, just to organize my thinking, uh, so the main thing about the attachment style theory is it's about how your nervous system amps up that, and, and it's sort of based on the template of how your nervous system learned to respond to your parent.
1: Yep. So if basically amping things up was what got your needs met then as an adult, you're going to tend to amp things up when your partner or your intimate person isn't meeting you the way that you want. If basically turning things down and withdrawing was what met your needs when you were in this attachment phase, then that might be more reflexive. But if there was a lot of disorganized stuff going on, not predictable, um, stuff that was truly more traumatic, a little more scary, then you have these disorganized um, zones which you know, can have these moments where people kind of lose their minds, you know, they're just, Mm -hmm. you're not yourself. You're just kind of, you flipped your lid, so to speak.
0: Interesting. And so does this theory have like ways to kind of recalibrate the nervous system?
1: A hundred percent. Yes. So, earned secure attachment is actually thought to be stronger than regular secure attachment. So one of the most important things we can do on our healing journey is be really honest when we notice that our nervous system is in a place of dysregulation and all of the healing strategies that we're talking about can be supportive. The first thing is to try to come back to presence. In nonviolent communication, we call this the zero step. Like if I'm in a problem with you and I try to talk to you about it when I'm super amped and you're super amped, that tends to not go really well. If we can sort of do whatever self-care we need to do alone or in the support of a community that's not the person we're having the problem with in that moment, chances are we'll be able to come back and work through this with our more adult self. Because when we're triggered, you're basically talking to somebody's inner like seven to ten-year-old Whenever they're triggered. And when you're in that space, you're really operating from your inner, you know, seven to 10 year old. So it's really important to just remember that this person is not their adult self in that moment, or maybe you're not, and having compassion for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, what's an example of earning secure attachment?
1: Yeah. So, earned secure attachment would be, well, so I. Well, and this isn't why I was bringing it up is because I actually think that the attachment types have a mixture of anxious and avoidant attachment styles. Like I used to think that I might be a four because you read about fours doing this push pull thing in relationships sometimes, which is sort of a mixture of anxious and avoidant type behaviors. And I've been actually talking to my attachment type friends, and we've been unpacking this. And I think that because attachment types have this attachment to disconnect, you watch us do these interesting thing in relationship where we want the attachment. So when we're like going in for the attachment, there's more of this anxious stuff where it's, um, you know, I, I just, there's like more merging. There's more like if we're not similar enough um, in that attachment zone it might not feel as comfortable and natural for me and yet as attachment types I do think that autonomy is also a big issue it's like mm-hmm. how can I be attached to you but also maintain my independent sense of self so there's that sexual instinct that's like forcing you to merge but then there's like this attachment stuff that also is trying to locate who and what I am separate from this relationship and it creates a lot of tension Attention. More for attachment types, I think, than perhaps the rejection types who seem to know their location better than an attachment type. So when the attachment type starts to get too mergy, too attached, I think you start to see these withdrawn or more avoidant behaviors coming out. And that's our attempt to reclaim our sense of self and our autonomy and find our own location again, because something isn't lining up with our integrity or our authenticity. But we don't always have healthy ways of doing that, because we are so afraid of an attachment rupture at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, you said something about, you know, like the independent self, and then the the self that gets anxious to attach or to create, you know, that wants to attach or something. I think, you know, the, the, what we've sort of come up with a big hormone is um, attachment types kind of lead with let's attach. Yes. Like they lead with searching for the attachment. Yes. And it's like when they can anchor into an attachment, depending on how safe that attachment is, then they feel more permission to allow more aspects of themselves to come out for that independent self to come and express itself more fully. Yes. In in attachment type relationships where it's not secure attachment, I, and I don't know how this correlates with the attachment theory, but when there's not a when there's not an attachment they can or connection they can trust, you see that kind of blurry self. You know, you see that self that's not really being my full self that's some you know, like being on automatic, however that looks through the lens of nine, three, or six. by contrast, hexad types, frustration, and rejection types put forward their independent self first. like this is my location. And then, they are will then then when that independent self is established then the attachment happens then it's like I can blur I can merge I can do all these things more so it's like an opposite uh strategy in a way and it's interesting because we're still working it out but like suddenly like like and I don't you know I'm trying to figure I don't know what's different between hexad attachment in this regard but what we've noticed with some hexad types is that they put their location out there and maybe they get into a relationship or something like that. And then, and then there's like this kind of adaptive thing. That's like sort of under the radar where the partner or who, whatever has become part of the hexatype's location. And so there's this kind of merging thing that's happening that they're not even aware that they've, they've done. And there it's, 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 And I don't know how that's quite, you know, I'm still kind of getting a a feel for it, how it's different for
1: attachment. Well, let me name my experience of this because I 100% have done this. So the example that's coming to mind for me is that when I meet someone that I'd like to get to know better or I'd like to form some sort of an attachment with, I'm totally willing to flex my location to meet them where they're at. And as a self press three, that often is around work. So if I meet somebody in a certain healthcare setting and I know that we can create something cool together, I might really be curious about what they're interested in and I'll flex to them. Um, or if it's somebody that I wanna teach with, or if it's somebody that has an area that I'm just curious about but I don't know a lot about, I will totally blur my location to sort of explore that zone. And I think that's even a little more pronounced for me because I have a seven fix, so I can get really excited about almost any idea people throw at me. And I almost have to try it on before I know if it is a location that I wanna be in or not. But when I'm first forming that attachment, I'm willing to really follow them wherever they want to take me. And it's as we develop greater levels of intimacy that I can be increasingly honest about oh, this, um, you know, I like this vibe or no, you know, I'm, I'm not liking this direction, or I don't agree, or I think I actually have a preference for this. So I can see that in the beginning, just forming the attachment is really important before I feel safe naming my my like just naming what i really want with all the passion that i may have and i don't even know what that is all the time it's almost kind of embarrassing to say i don't actually know the direction that i want something to go and this podcast is a perfect example of this i was like john let's talk and I do it in this interview style because I'm almost just tracking you and I have this willingness to let this interview go wherever it is you want it to go and then if it starts going somewhere that I'm not liking, well then I can feel that and I might say something or I might want to redirect or I might want to pivot, but that doesn't make me want to break the attachment. Whereas sometimes when I'm engaging with a hexad type. I'll notice that they're a lot more locked into their location. It almost feels like we won't have an attachment unless I flex first because they're so fixed. And, you know, what I really want is for there to be collaboration and communication and growth and mutual support. So... I'm willing to flex. And as those things grow, there absolutely is this expectation that they may also flex a little bit for me. So I think that this has only come online for me recently because I can definitely see that this also happens in relationship. And historically, I have flexed myself for a partner and potentially ended up somewhere that I didn't want to be. Whereas now I know that one of the things that's really important to me, for example, is someone who's on a personal growth journey that has the ability to look inward and have some type of presence and who wants to be in the intuitive space. So I also sometimes bring in Myers-Briggs. So I'm an ENFP. So I love to be an extroverted intuition space, which is why this podcast is amazing. And what we're doing right now, this is my zone. It's like, I am intuitively sensing what we're talking about and where we're going. And I love putting it out there in this extroverted way. Now my co-pilot or secondary function is introverted feeling. So if I want to discover how I'm actually feeling about these things we're talking about, I will go away. And I sort of sit with those and I actually have to bring some presence to it, which I think is hard for three sixes and nines because we have so many ways that we leave ourselves. But as I've developed presence practices, I've learned how to go to that introverted feeling area and that's giving me a lot more information and it's helping me to show up in my relationships with a lot more efficacy. Mm -hmm. My uh, three-year-old function is introverted sensing, which is why body-based practices have been very important for me. Um, It's a little, it's my weakest function to just sit and pick up on internal body sensations. So that's been something that I've had to practice and that when I combine the introverted feeling with the introverted sensing, I feel like I have much better data with which to make my extroverted assertive type actions with. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. 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 And I want to circle back though, because I didn't answer a question you asked. This is another thing. Um, I tend to go in this circumferential or tangential way, but I like to bring it back again. You'd asked about earned secure attachment and we then got off on, well, what triggers us when you have earned secure attachment, you actually can recognize I'm reacting in an anxious way. I'm reacting in an avoidant way. I'm reacting in a disorganized way. Can I take accountability? Can I take ownership for all of this stuff that's going on inside of me and not project it onto the other person and make it their fault? And can I go and do the internal work that I need to do to understand What are the observations and sensations and triggers that came in that then launched me into an emotional circuit, which then started creating all of these thoughts and then completely disintegrated my heart center and has me feeling these crazy feelings. So if I can sort of map that out, Understand what that is, hold that with some compassion, give myself the empathy and the loving kindness that I might need and support from people who are not that person that's triggered me, and then re enter that space, taking responsibility for what happened inside of me and being able to communicate hey, I know you love me. I know you want to support me. The next time we're in this situation, do you think that you could ABC? knowing that they might not because they were also just operating out their programming and they'll go unconscious and they'll forget. But can they even have some understanding, some compassion, can they mourn the impact of whatever it is that they did that created this reaction without having to be at fault, without having to take blame. And when you can start engaging with your partner with a lot of mutuality, where you're both bringing that kind of energy, you can stay together even when there's rupture. And one of the things that really encourages me is that It doesn't really matter how turbulent or how much rupture occurs within relationship. It's really about how we repair. Can we learn healthy strategies for repair? Because just like a broken bone, once it heals, is actually stronger than the original bone that was there. Earned secure attachment is actually stronger than regular secure attachment. Mm. Because it's never been challenged and it doesn't have that resilience to it.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. That tracks for me. It's just like in relationships seeing where either like something was not properly repaired and how that damaged things or in relationships, how things like, you know, like you kind of have like, you go off and you get crazy in some reaction or something like that. And you're like, Holy fuck. Like (laughs) that was in me. And like, I didn't know that affected me that way. But then when you're able to have somebody that you're working with, that is trying to work with you as well, You know, yeah, I can see how that's like actually very, very, very powerful.
1: Yeah, because those parts of us that are reacting, I like to bring in some of the internal family systems language. We call those the exile. You know, the exile is that part of ourself that is this little tiny child that somewhere along the way was not seen, was not heard, was, you know, hurt in some way. And that child starts like wailing inside of us. And then we have these firefighters that come in and cause us to act out in whatever way that makes us feel stronger and more protected and more closed down, but often, you know, have these costs to our experience and so if we can start noticing all these different pieces of ourselves and how they are showing up in our relationships can we start to care for those individual pieces heal those little hurt trauma places that have happened along the way that has not manifesting the way it is now and over time take away some of the charge that happens when that one specific thing starts to get our nervous system going
0: yeah i um we need to find like another term for attachment types than attachment. Like yeah. I, th- I think attachment to disconnect, which is Xander Tan's uh, innovation or recognition. Uh, I don't know, even like even calling them like <laughs> disconnect types or something. I don't know. But to distinguish it from attachment theory, because it gets confusing. But um, man, what was my? I had a question that is slipping me. I'm still like, even though this is like pathetically late in the day, I'm still groggy. Like it takes me hours for my brain to start working. I know, um, just
1: for our listeners, yeah. I asked John if he could start today at eleven thirty. I'm like, I know that's early for you, but yeah. <laughs> we have totally different biorhythms.
0: Yeah, no, I I take like three hours to wake up, and then <laughs> and, the, and then the amount of uh, work I can produce from an awake state is very minimal. <laughs> and then I can, you know, at least practical, useful work. Um,
1: And I'm kind of like the energizer bunny where I have often overwhelmed my, uh, sweet nine partners who also like my, uh, ex-boyfriend had this mug, which I love you more than coffee, but not before my coffee, (laughs) because I just wake up with my extroverted intuition, ready to like spew the brilliant things that came to my head while I was sleeping, but like by eight, nine, 10 at night, like total shutdown. Like okay. all of a sudden I actually sleep with tape on my mouth to encourage good breathing. And it's like, yep. Tape on mouth done. Good night until wow. the next morning.
0: No, I mean, I, uh, late at night is when my brain starts getting active. Uh, and I like, when I, I draw the best, I paint the best, I, my best ideas. Uh yeah, morning is like three hours of just not of being a zombie until I'm somewhat functional, and it's really terrible. But um, gosh, I had a question. Oh, so in terms of attachment theory, uh, it seems like everybody has probably got a mix of the lot, right? Yeah. They have probably got all four styles to some some degrees. Is, is it do they evaluate? Do they do, do people that use attachment theory find this? helpful to evaluate like like oh i'm i'm mostly secure or i'm mostly anxious or emotional mostly what's the the avoidant Avoidant
1: or disorganized yeah
0: or like does it occur in a certain pattern like oh i'm avoidant until i get to a certain area of activation and then i become anxious attachment or something like that yeah
1: well and the very interesting thing about attachment theory and i just want to name that this is all still evolving and being worked out kind of like uh the instincts and you know there have been it used to be thought that they kind of labeled people and put people in boxes and as we know that's not that helpful because you're just naming how one human is acting in one relationship at Mm -hmm. one moment in time. So one of the things we want to do while we're using these labels, while we're even talking about the Enneagram points or the instincts is to just make sure everybody remembers that we are very complicated human beings and all of this lives inside all of us, but we tend to default to something more often than another. Like Mm -hmm. I actually have relatively high levels of secure attachment, but I'm very aware of my anxious attachment um, because that's where I suffer. You know, whenever I'm suffering in relationship, it's almost always because my anxious attachment stuff is kicking up. When my avoidant attachment stuff comes on, I, it's like really protective. Like as a three, I know that I'm entering avoidant attachment because I have dissociated from my heart. Mm -hmm. Like I don't want to feel that stuff. Like Mm -hmm. you're being whatever you're being usually, you know, an anxious triggers avoidant and avoidant triggers anxious. But sometimes if you have two anxious people, it's just going to like, Proom! you know, it's like, it's, you're going to have a lot of drama. You have two avoidant people. You're just going to see them like sitting in different corners of the house, like doing their own thing. Usually what you have is one person's doing avoidant and they're kind of trying to pull away and that's amping up the anxiety and the anxious person and they start chasing. And that's <laughs> the exact wrong thing to do when this Person's nervous system is triggered, but this person's so anxious they can't sit with that anxiety, and there's all this fear that the relationship is rupturing. So when you have a partner. I've had two more avoidant partners and one more anxious partner, and what was interesting for me is that in the avoidant relationships, I got anxious. In the anxious relationship, I would get avoidant. It was harder for me to be in the anxious space than the avoidant space because the avoidant space is just uh, shutting down the heart. You know, it's like, I'm not letting you in. You can just feel the walls go up. and. Obviously, that's not good for a relationship, not good for repair, but it feels really safe. Mm. Whereas when I'm feeling in the ancient attachment space, that's my disintegrated heart space. There's all these emotions, everything's whipped up, I can't find secure ground, and I'm just sort of chasing you and wanting to understand and wanting reassurance that the attachment is still there. And it has this sort of... I call it like two energy, like average Mm. two energy where you're getting a little invasive.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I can see different aspects of myself in these different things. And I think uh, going avoidant and then anxious is like my (laughs) deal, you know, which would track with, with drawn type with a line to two.
1: Yeah. Totally makes sense. And this is something that I'd love to unpack in an episode at some point is to just go around the wheel and talk about what attachment looks like for different types. And I think that as we do um, our interviews, it'll be really interesting to just ask a few questions around when people get triggered with their partners or they go into stress. What kind of behaviors are we seeing? And is this tracking more with type or is it tracking more with instinctual stack? And the answer is probably yes.
0: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, something I also want to kind of you, you you mentioned something about um, when we were referring to attachment types in the object relational sense, not the attachment theory. And you were talking about I think about like like being with an attachment friend and like moving into form a creator, meet through an attachment. And you 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 mentioned the word merging, and you brought in sexual instinct, and. Something that I want to explore more is the difference between merging from the point of view of attachment types, 369, versus sexual instinct and versus social instinct. Yeah. You know, like, one of the things that we've been meaning to do on Big Hormone is to have on social hexad types versus, because we've had a lot of, you know, we have our, like, Alexander and Courtney are social attachment types Mm-hmm. And so, what's the difference? Where's hexad and social overlap, and what makes you know what makes them different from you know what's what's where's attachment versus where it's social, yeah. and like you know, and then how do you get to like a social blind attachment type and and those kind of deals?
1: Yeah, well, and I think that I was talking to you yesterday, and I was saying that there's this other model that to me was really playing into what I think about when I think about attachment theory, because there's this whole piece that, what's the gentleman's name that I, uh, Jerome, is it Lub or Lute? What's his last name?
0: I am terrible at pronouncing anything.
1: Okay. So, um, but he has written a book about the um, brain-based Enneagram, uh, the author. And he had this one model that I was resonating with that was talking about this brake phenomenon, this gas phenomenon, and this cruise control phenomenon. And this was resonating with me just because when I think about the gas, like that's when I'm in my more like the seeking circuit or the anxious attachment, like I'm kind of moving in. And for me, this piece happens because heart centered people are the ones that will turn the gas on and sort of move in emotionally along with this model as well as the sexual instinct will kind of move in with this model, as well as an assertive type will kind of move in with this model. So when we look at this, um, an attachment type specifically, I was resonating with the fact that my gas seems to come from being a three, which is an assertive type and being heart-centered, which kind of drives that emotionality of it. But being sexual blind and self president dominant sexual is what puts on the gas, but self president is what puts on a break. And this was making sense to me in that I tend to lead with the gas because of the assertive and the heart-centeredness. But then sometimes, specifically even in relationships, I get to this place where suddenly I'm like, whoa, and my self president kind of pulls me back a little bit. So when I look at how my type works in relationship. That's sort of why I think I get this, you know, lean in, pull back that little bit of push pull stuff that I see happening in relationship. And it is different than that sexual instinct. When we talk about the loss of self, or I think you use the word fusion instead of merging. Is that right?
0: Or do you Um, like merge? What do you like? I don't know if I, I don't remember if I use fusion, but I, I don't use merging because I think merging from the point of view, the sexual instinct is a little too like soft and romantic. Like I think sometimes, <laughs> uh, the way I see people talk about merging is it's very soft and gentle of this, like just coming together or, or kind of deal. And, and so in the context of sexual instinct, uh, you know, a big part of sexual instinct is transgression yeah transgression of boundaries and it's it gets activated through a certain something to penetrate you know and so yeah so and 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 also the experience of it is not so much like now we are one and together you know it's like this kind of it's a loss of self kind of experience
1: well, and don't you feel like when you're in the sexual instinct zone that it's like, I've lost myself, you've lost yourself, and now we're something new together that is transcendent, powerful, potentially destructive, um, all of these different adjectives that you might bring in. That's how I'm thinking about it. How is it for you?
0: Yeah. You know, even then, like, like- – I, I think you are getting it right, but I think that somebody listening could uh, still interpret that in a very like kind of social way because it's like, yeah, we're together, but it's like, it doesn't even feel together. You know, it doesn't feel like, like you said, it's an, another thing. Like yeah. It, 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 it doesn't feel like, oh, it's you and I together. It's like, there's an, it's kind of this. Chemical reaction. Yeah, it's It's alchemy. It's
1: like, you know, there's a, I mean, I think of it as the law of three. Like, here's one individual, here's another individual. You insert that sexual energy, and there's this, like, third force that is not either one. And it's a really, like, new plateau. And I think that this is why a lot of people have affairs, because certain things in their relationship are becoming very dry, boring, Mm -hmm. predictable, Bland, And people don't know how to activate their own sexual instinct with each other. And it's a lot easier to let that transgressive piece come in and people actually discover something new that they weren't able to access within the relationship they were in.
0: Right. Absolutely. Also, you know, this is another thing we can get into. A lot of people aren't attracted to each other. Mm hmm like they might find their partner handsome or pretty or something like this, but like attraction, like they often they don't have a lot of like attra- like actual attraction. And that's just something that like has can kind of been fascinating to watch and in, in people and, and I don't know, just the you can have like a certain kind of like maybe compatible love map, so to speak, or like uh, object relational dynamic or something like that. But then there's like just like the body attraction. All these different things that um, it'd be interesting to get into kind of like the nuance nuances and levels of this kind of this kind of thing, because, yeah, it's so complicated and it's so fundamental. And it's like it's such a they're all such driving forces in people's lives. So, like, I mean, that's something especially the Alexandra as a, you know, like I said, sexual blind social nine uh, who like has has fairly recently like learned to really integrate her sexual instinct in like a very powerful real way. Now she's really awake to like, we'll watch those kind of reality shows or something like that, or just interact, watch people interact. And she'll be like, Oh yeah, they're not even into each other. They're not even attracted to each other. Like now she has the vocabulary and the language for it because she's had the experience of rec- being in partnerships where there was an attraction, but there was a, there was an attachment or there was some kind of, you know, she talks about her ex would have made a good business partner <laughs> with her, but wasn't wasn't good in as in relationship. And so now that she, now that there's some sense of what that looks like or or feels like in the body, then she's really perceptive to oh, they're not really even attracted to each other, or or whatever you know, or they're attracted to each other but they're a terrible match.
1: Yeah, and I think that this is going to be really interesting to explore because. The sexual instinct can absolutely be present and two people have that type of attraction you're talking about, which is real sexual instinct energy, not just attachment stuff. But what I'm curious about is that I think that that's ephemeral and a bit mercurial. And I don't think that you can rely on it always being there, even within the same two people. And when I think of the sexual instinct, there's a poem about the wild animal in the woods. And if you want to see it, you shouldn't go crashing through the woods looking for it. You have to sort of sit quietly by the tree and it emerges and comes. Now, I know that that image is in direct contrast to the power and the energy that is in the sexual instinct. And yet, I know many, many people... That felt like there was amazing connection chemistry at one point in their relationship, but add, you know, marriage, a mortgage, a bunch of kids, you know, the sort of soul crushing things that can happen (laughs) to us in this life. And that can easily become extinguished. So, what I'm really curious about, and I'm a huge fan of Esther Perel. She's written a book called Mating in Captivity how to maintain passion and romance in a long-term committed relationship. And I think that a lot of the things she talks about are really, really interesting. And she says that most of us are going to have three significant relationships in our lifetime. And sometimes those three relationships are with the same person. So how do we reinvent ourselves as our biology changes, as we age, as our social structures change, such that we can keep reigniting that sexual energy in between us, because otherwise it seems like the only option is to either shut it down or find it outside of the the couple, which can have pretty disruptive impacts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that'll be interesting to, to unpack. Cause yeah, I've, I also like Esther Perel. I haven't read as much as you have, but, um, yeah, I was, I watched a lot of her lectures and, and, I think it was mating in captivity that I read in researching my book and yeah, just like the, this, the, the role of novelty in, uh, anyway, very, yeah, that, that aspect of, of the renewal part of the sexual instinct is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. And, you know, because I think that when we talk about partnerships, they're all, you have to have three healthy instincts, I think, to have a good partnership, you know, you have to, and somebody will probably be dominant in one and less dominant in another or blind in another. And another thing that will be really interesting to see as we start talking to couples is are we seeing couples with the same instinctual stack or different instinctual stacks? And do certain stacks have typical problems with other stacks or what's that all going to look like? But at the end of the day, recognizing that we want to be with somebody that is similar enough that we can vibe with them but also different enough such that they support challenge invite growth i think it's both important definitely well i think that we covered a lot here today and we didn't even know we were going to talk about this (laughs) i know (laughs) so thank you for being on this journey with john and i as we have explored the role of attachment theory in attachment and hexat types i think it's really great that we framed some of these things and got some of our examples out there and in an upcoming episode we're going to take you around the wheel and talk about how i think the attachment styles are playing out in each Enneagram type. And I'm very excited that I will be having uh, two of my Ennea friends to join me, who we've had a lot of conversations with. And I just want to thank John for all of the time and wisdom that he has given to our podcast. I think that we are off to a great start and hopefully he'll be able to work with us some more in the future. But until then, if there are any couples out there that would love to come on the show talk about your instinctual drives how these are showing up please know that you can do this anonymously you can do it publicly if you're also doing Enneagram work and would like to promote that I'm just really excited to keep exploring how all of these energies are showing up for you and as always if you're a listener and you want us to talk more about a certain area or you have questions or concerns about anything that was shared please email us at contact at EnneagramBlindSpots.com. I would love to hear your feedback and we can integrate it into future shows. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at EnneagramBlindSpots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice Well Essence MD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.